News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. So my job here today is to tell you about what's going on out there in the world. Tell some interesting stories, right? Maybe do some grocery shopping when I go home, that kind of stuff. It feels very, very small compared to the job that we are about to talk about. Designing housing for outer space. Yes, there is a need for this. And yes, there are people who study this and work on it. Dr. Adam Frank is professor of astrophysics at the University of Rochester and the author of Light of the Stars, Alien Worlds and the Fate of the Earth and joins us now. Good morning, Dr. Frank. Good morning. Why do we need housing in outer space? (laughs) Well, we don't need it tomorrow, luckily. Um, But when you look at the long term, uh, you know, the future of humanity, the next 100 years or 200 years or so, which, you know, may seem like a long time to people, but it's a blink of the eye for history. um, There's a good chance that we'll have a lot of people out in space working. That's what's happening. You know, there's all this move with all these commercial space ventures. And the question is, where can people live? Space is a pretty hostile environment. If there really would, we really had millions or hundreds of millions of people living and working in space. Where would they live? (laughs) Okay, where would they live then? How do we figure this out? (laughs) Well, you know, people often talk about Mars as a place uh, where for for people to live, that you might be able to settle Mars. And in general, you know, what we're looking at, if, if humanity makes it past climate change and all the challenges we have, you know, there's a whole solar system out there waiting for us. Um, and, uh, you know, there's planets and moons that, that we could try and settle. Uh, and, and Mars is, you know, a, a planet that is about half the size of Earth. It's, it's, in many ways, it's like Earth, except it's, you know, there's a very thin atmosphere. There's really not much water. You'd have to do a lot of work in order to make Mars habitable. You'd have to build your cities probably underground or into cliffs. Um, you have to protect from radiation, uh, there, you know, because they don't have a magnetic field. So there'd be a lot of work involved in trying to make Mars habitable. The thing that we studied in our paper was looking at turning asteroids into rotating space cities. Oh, okay. How, that sounds interesting. Why? Why asteroids? <laughs> Well, see, here's the problem, you know, so like I said, so Elon Musk keeps talking about the fact that like, oh, you know, he's going to pay for us going to Mars and building cities on Mars. So Mars gets all this attention. But what we said is, look, one of the problems with Mars is, you know, it's down what we call a gravity well, right? Every planet has a lot of gravity and you need a big old rocket to blast yourself off or to land safely. And what we were saying is, you know, maybe rather than trying to, you know, put all our eggs into uh, uh, building habitats on planets, what you could do is you could take an asteroid, which is already has a huge amount of natural resources, iron, et cetera, that you'd need, and um, break it up and, and, and reformulate it into a rotating, because you need gravity, rotating uh, system where you could have, you know, hundreds of millions or tens of millions of people living on the inside of the rotating asteroid. Okay, but how would you do that? Like, how would you capture the asteroid and then build on it? Like, you'd have to land on the asteroid and do all this? Uh, Yeah, you'd have to, you know, you'd have to um, uh, modify or change the properties of the asteroid, which may seem like pretty amazing, right? Because asteroids are basically flying mountains. Yes. So. So, but the thing is, is that, you know, we're already thinking about mining asteroids. These are, I don't know how many billions of dollars already, you know, startup companies thinking about mining asteroids. So again, in a hundred years or so, this may not be such a, you know, remarkable thing that we're trying to do. So what we showed in our paper was what you could do is you could land on an asteroid, you know, drive rockets into it to spin it up 
And it turns out that the smaller asteroids, this is an amazing thing about the smaller asteroids, less than 50 kilometers across, they're actually piles of rubble. They're not actually rock. They're not, you know, they're, they're basically uh, sand and pebbles and boulders held loosely together by their own gravity. So if you could just spin them up a little bit, they'd start to fly apart. Just the way, like, when you're on a merry-go-round, you could feel yourself kind of being pushed outward. Uh, and then what we would do is, now this sounds crazy, we would cover the asteroid in a bag of uh, very high-strength material, like what we call carbon nanofiber. And so as the asteroid was spun up and it started to come apart, started to fling itself apart, this bag would stretch like, you know, a giant um, bag of rubber bands. And eventually it would reach its maximum extent and then it would snap tight and all of that material, all of the sand and boulders would get caught in the bag and it would get compacted like concrete. And so you end up with this beautiful cylindrical shell that was maybe, you know, 10 miles across. And then it would have enough interior space on the inside as Manhattan does. And, you know, there's a lot of people living in Manhattan. Okay, one, this sounds like the movie Armageddon. <laughs> Isn't that yes, what they did? It does. In deep about impact. The bomb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in deep impact in Armageddon, they like, put a, you know, right into exploded into the middle of an asteroid, didn't they? Right, right. But we're doing this in a controlled fashion. You know, slow you'd slowly spin it up and then the material would get flung off and then, you know, the bag would be wrapped around it and then it would be caught. How I know you- it sounds this is what we would call astro engineering and it seems crazy, but really in another hundred years or so, this may not be, this is maybe something that, that may not be so difficult I be- to do. I, I believe you. I believe you. So, Matt, look, we're thinking about things that even a hundred years ago, can you imagine the things that we have today if you told them that a hundred years exactly. ago? So, right. I guess my question then is, how do you even test something like this? Yeah, well, right now what we had to do was we did computer simulations of it. There's like right right now, you know, the technology just simply isn't there. But you can run fairly sophisticated computer simulations of, you know, wrapping, of having this, this um, uh, you know, webbing around the asteroid and then spinning it up. And in the simulations, we could watch as the material, the little rocks got flung outward uh, until the bag um, reached its maximum extent. So we actually could run as a first cut at this physically based simulations to see whether it worked and it worked quite well. Okay. So then how do you take that simulation to the next step then? Yeah, well, that may take a little bit of time, right? Cause I, as we said in the paper, this is speculation. Um, but so, you know, we would, that would we'd require quite a bit of space infrastructure to begin to test this kind of thing. But what we were doing was, is we were laying out now, you know, maybe a century before this is going to be possible ways in which we can envision having a real human presence in space. Because that's really the thing. We are, as you said, you know, uh, 200 years ago, nobody had traveled faster than, you know, 20 miles an hour unless they were falling to their death, right? right? But now we can really sort of look to the future and see that if we can make it through climate change, if we can make it through all of the difficult uh, difficulties we're facing, the solar system is the next logical step for us. And so you can, it's good to start asking these questions now. What would it look like? How would we imagine ourselves to have a real presence in space so that maybe, you know, in a century or two, there are hundreds of millions of people living in space with whole vibrant communities experimenting with all kinds of new forms of democracy out there. So, Dr. Frank, do you think this is the time then to think about that kind of stuff, right? Like, as you say, come up with as many different ideas as possible so that when technology catches up with us, we have these options. 
Yeah, I think it's both. This is both important for you know thinking about the technologies that are possible, but it's also important for people. This 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 exercise of imagining a positive human future where we do amazing things. You know, we take we manage to take care of the earth and keep the earth you know sustainable and habitable, but also expand outward, which is just what human beings have always done to build an extraordinary human future. I think it's it's just as important to do that as it is to get the technical details right. It is so fascinating. So is this the work that you're doing mainly right now? What else are you working on? Oh, well, this is one of the many things. I do a lot of work on thinking about um, life on other planets, both within the solar system and outside. People may know we just launched the JWST, the, the, that big space telescope. And that space telescope is the first that's really going to start giving us the capacities to maybe find biospheres on other planets, the telescopes that are going to come right after that are going to be even more powerful. So I do a lot of thinking about life in the universe, both both microbial or forest, you know, non-intelligent. But I also do, I have a grant from NASA to study the possibilities of intelligent life on other worlds. Because we, that's what people should understand. We finally have the telescopic capacities, the technological capacities to really answer the question of life in the universe. In the next 20, 30, 40 years, we're going to have data that's going to be relevant to that question, which is people have been asking that question for since yeah. the Greeks. And it's, it's just been people yelling at each other. Finally, now <laughs> we're going to have the data that is going to tell us something. Amazing. Dr. Frank, thank you so much for your time this morning. Sure. It was my pleasure. I love your city, by the way. Uh, well, I love your job. It's fascinating. Thank you for your time today. <laughs> That's Dr. Adam Frank, professor of astrophysics at the University of Rochester. Uh, and yeah, I feel like, all right, I, my job is great, but his job is amazing. His job could potentially, you know, help to save humanity, which is kind of a big deal, right? Uh, we love to talk about that kind of stuff. This is Mornings with Simi. This morning, 9.30, we expect to find out the next step in what is going on with Surrey policing. I say the next step and not the final decision because there will be more steps, right? This has been a long, torturous process. And really what we should be asking is what can we learn from this to make sure it never happens again? Well, joining us now is Rob Gordon, a professor of criminology at Simon Fraser University. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Simi. Doesn't this feel like the process that never ends? (laughs) <laughs> Long and torturous. I thought that was very good. Yeah, that's precisely <laughs> what it's been. Has this ever been anything like this before, Rob? Just to decide the issue of policing in a community? No, and it's it's a it's an appalling example of how politics and public policy uh, should not become entangled. I, I I I mean, there's a lot to learn from it. One of which, of course, is that. Uh, policing in British Columbia is organizationally is a mess, has been for some time. Um, and we've got a, a really nice report that's put together with recommendations that I'm hoping we hear this morning is going to be uh, moved forward in terms of its timetable because this will deal with the matter once and for all, I think. Um, what am I saying? <laughs> no, I think I think if we can get some stability um, in the organization and right. management and administration of policing, we'll be in much better shape. So what can we take from this, though, Rob? Like, if this is an opportunity, you've got everybody in the province paying attention to the issue of policing at this moment. What can we learn from this or, or, or do here that will set an example for the future? 
But I wonder whether, in fact, people in the province uh, are bothered with this. I, I, I hear that people are not, that it is uh, an irritant, um, and that the politicians should get on with it and start fussing around. Uh, so I'm not so sure that, uh, that there's a huge amount of interest in it. I, I, I've been puzzling over why it's not been uh, overall and over the years a political issue, an election issue. Uh, it simply has never come up in uh, any of these uh, any of the elections we've had, municipal or provincial, uh, and it is barely mentioned at the federal level, even though, of course, the RCMP situation uh, is now coming to a head. Not the first time, but it's coming to a head. And that has an impact on what goes on here, because we, we contract with the RCMP to provide provincial and municipal policing. So we're, we're jammed in this uh, situation where absurd situation where we've had this problem now for years and politicians seem unable to break themselves out from uh, from, from the trap. Uh, so, you know, we'll see what happens uh, at 9.30. We will. Um, I, I guess, Rob, yeah. the other thing I, I, I'm hoping people will take from this is, and I'm not sure people are, but that elections matter. When politicians make promises and you vote for those politicians, there are consequences to that. <laughs> yeah, that, that was nice, wouldn't it? I think I think it's this modern world that people are a little um, uh, overwhelmed with all the decisions that have to be made about all the topics that are out there. I would have thought that policing the justice system generally uh, would have been something that uh, you know would have appeared as a priority in elections, and from time to time, I suppose you do get that, but not on the policing front. Most people seem content. Uh, to uh, to just simply go with the status quo. Uh, look how difficult it's been to try to unseat the Mounties who have, who have been, uh, I think, elevated way beyond their level of competence in terms of managing things to do with the justice system. And there's been an interference in uh, local and, pro- and provincial politics on the part of, of, the, uh, of the RCMP, way beyond their mandate. Uh, and I think there have been consequences, negative consequences, because of that. And yet, as you said, it's still been so difficult. I mean, 10 years ago, then Surrey Mayor Diane Watts said exactly that, I guess, pretty much, when the idea was floated of having a police service. And she said, oh, it's so incredibly challenging to get rid of the RCMP. And it turns out that is very true. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. Um, it, it has been like that right across uh, the province, not just in Surrey. Um, it's been very difficult for a number of municipalities who can't even agree uh, on where they should go uh, with amalgamations in the large metropolitan areas, um, which is why I think that this is something that should never have been um, put into the local political arena. I think provincial politicians have tried to sidestep it push it down to the municipalities. They did with a number of other things and continue to do. Difficult decisions that are not really difficult at all, but they just they simply have consequences amongst certain voters. Not all, for sure, um, but certain voters uh, at, uh, at the right. municipal level. I mean, we so could say it, certain it, voters got us into this, right? But all voters in Surrey are going to end up paying for this. Big time. 
<laughs> Whichever way it goes this morning, there's a bill attached to it. And uh, I think we've already seen examples of how large that's going to be. It is very large. So what do you think is going to happen, Rob? Um, well, I, 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 <laughs> I've been puzzling on this one and canvassing you know, those who in my immediate uh, uh, world who I think have input. And some seem to think that uh, the province will go with the Surrey Police Service model. Um, the RCMP is low on the list, but I, I, I'm, we could see the government stalling again. I sincerely hope not. But they could always come up with some contrived pretext to push the decision further on down the line. Um, so we don't get a decision this morning. Um, but what I'm hoping is uh, what I've been appealing for, which is to the Solicitor General to accept the the recommendations of the All-Party Committee that came up with an excellent report on what to do about policing and the Police Act in the province um, that includes the reestablishment of a BC police service uh, that will cover the ground that's currently covered by the RCMP, release the RCMP from their contract with the, the province. When they do that, the rationale for uh, being involved in, in, um, in municipal policing, which most people see as an absurdity, um, that, that, don't, that vanishes. Um, and they can just concentrate on uh, coming up with regional clusters of police services from places like Metro Vancouver and Metro Victoria. And that, that I'm hoping, is what uh, the Solicitor General will go for this morning. I'm not holding my breath. Though. I was just going to say, I did not even know that was on the table. Like, I didn't even think that well, was a possibility. Well, the report's there, Simi, and it's very good. It was well done. Um, and it's been two years since that yeah. was released. Uh, and he, uh, Mike Farmer, has uh, indicated that there's a line item uh, in his budget, uh, $25 million for the implementation of that, that particular option. Um, and that, that could be in place fairly quickly, uh, all things considered. Um, four to five years is not... Uh, a, a long period of time when you're talking about turning around, uh, re-establishing a police service for the province as a whole, as a whole, and the, and the major municipalities. Uh, it, it, it would take some time to do it, but I think people would have a confidence in the government if they say, "Yes, we're going to do this." Uh, it'll take us a while, but we've got the money in place, right. and we've actually started doing it. But I think it's got some teams working on particular aspects already. So hmm. I'm optimistic that that's, that's perhaps where, the, the, uh, where the, the, the project will go um, and that we will see some uh, resolution of its ridiculous situation in Surrey. That's certainly the case. Well, that sounds to me like an election topic for next year. Uh, Rob, thank you so much for joining us. All right, Timmy, you're welcome. 
This is Mornings with Simi. This weekend, there's something very important that you can do tomorrow. You can go to an independent bookstore. Why? Well, tomorrow is Canadian Independent Bookstore Day. It's an annual event. takes place every year. And this is your chance to go in and support a local business and buy a great book at the same time. Independent bookstores are amazing. They are huge in supporting Canadian culture. And it's just a great place to gather and see some things about your local community that maybe you didn't know. Independent bookstores sell more books by Canadian contributors than, say, their counterparts or big box stores, right? And sales by Canadian authors made up 20% of independent bookstore sales compared to about 13% sold by other retailers. So we want to make sure that we are promoting local independent bookstores on this day. So joining us now is Hilary Atlia, who's a co-owner of Iron Dog Books. Hilary, thanks for being with us. I'm so glad to talk to you. Well, tell me about Iron Dog Books. What do you have there? Well, we're a small bookshop in East Van, so we're in Hastings Sunrise, about three blocks west of the P&E. We sell a ton of books, and we also sell a ton of giftware, like uh, games, board games. Um, We sell a lot of cards and socks, but our primary business is selling independent books, of which we have a wide selection. We try and be a good general store for the neighborhood. Okay, and what has it been like doing that? It's... It is quite literally the best job in the world. Everyone who thinks that it is going to be amazing to work in a bookshop is absolutely correct. I'm so jealous. Don't tell me this, Hillary, because that's always been my dream that if I didn't do this anymore, I'd open up a bookstore somewhere. Yeah, it really is the best job. Our customers are the best. It's such a, it's also a really thoughtful job and a job where I get to do a lot of, I think of it as real work, like physically moving things, which I find incredibly satisfying at the end of the day. So it's the best job. It's also a lot of organizing, stacking, alphabetizing. I'm all for all of those things. Um, What is the key, do you think, to the types of stories that independent bookstores bring out for us? Well, I think you really touched on the most important thing, which is the local support element that we are responding directly to the communities we're based in and the needs of that neighborhood. Also, that we do sell a much higher proportion of Canadian content than the big chains or the online sellers as a proportion of our sales. We also sell more by Canadian-owned publishers as a proportion of our sales than uh, the big box chains or online sellers. And it's that I think is something really important because it means that we have a really homegrown art scene. And I know being in radio, you really understand how important that is Mm -hmm. for the music scene as well. Yeah, it's essential. What inspired you to open a bookstore? We, I have been in books for a long time, working for other folks. And one of the things I always found when I went to Independence, my husband and I are both Indigenous, and we would go into big box chains as well as other small independents and not necessarily see the kind of robust Indigenous content that we were looking for. Um, and so we really felt like we needed to build a place where there was really great Indigenous content. I'm glad to say that's changing. Now you can go into any independent in the city and find a really good quality Indigenous section. But it's still, I think, essential that we can curate for our audience with our own particular lens, which is something that all Indies do. Yeah, and browsing is the key, isn't it, right? You want to be able to catch people's eyes. They're kind of wandering around. Well, and to provide an experience, I think so often we can be out like when we're shopping or doing online shopping, it can be focused on a really high convenience experience or like high convenience moment where it isn't necessarily an experience that gives you a feeling and going and browsing or shopping in an independent is 
is giving you a feeling or a thing to do. We have so many couples on like their second or third date who come through the shop. And I just think that's perfect. That's adorable. Also, also, like if that's your second or third date, I mean, somebody's book taste, that can tell you a lot about them, can it? Yeah, I feel like it's like a real make or break moment where you go to the bookshop and you walk around and you talk about all of your favorite things and it kind of tells you a lot about that person. I agree. I think that's a very good way. People should meet at a bookstore for a first date, don't you think? Yes, I think it's a good conversation prompt rather than, you know, sitting across from each other at coffee, staring at each other. I think going and walking around the bookshop, everyone should show the other person their favorite books as a child. You know what? I love this idea. And if they do that at Iron Dog Books, even better. Yep, I agree. Okay. (laughs) Listen, Hillary, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yeah, happy Independent Bookstore Day. This is Mornings with Simi. This is day 10 of the public service strike. It's one of the largest that we've ever seen here in Canada. More than 150,000 federal civil servants on the picket line. And at this point, it seems like neither side believes that a deal can be reached anytime soon. So let's get an update on this. Mackenzie Gray is our senior correspondent for Global News and joins us with that update. Good morning, Mackenzie. Good morning, Sammy. All right. So what is it like out there? Is there any kind of end in sight to this thing? Uh, not really right now. I mean, there's two key things uh, that the federal government and the union are not agreeing on, the first being wages. Uh, the federal government's come and said, look, our best offer, or, or you know, we have no more authorization to go further than this, that's what Mona Fortune, the head of the pre- uh, Treasury Board, said, is a 9% increase over three years. Uh, the union has said, look, that doesn't even keep up with inflation. We want something that keeps up with inflation for our workers. They say that's 13.5% over three years. And now the union has come in the last couple of days and said, we've moved off of that. They won't tell us how much they have come down. But Mona Forche, the head of the Treasury Board, has called their offers unreasonable. Uh, they're still at the table right now, but it doesn't look like on wages they're moving. Uh, and the other key thing in particular for workers here in Ottawa is being able to work from home and having that enshrined in the collective agreement. Uh, right now, the policy for the federal government is that uh, federal workers can work from home or work in the office, I should say, uh, two to three days a week. The other times they can work from home. The union wants the right to work from home enshrined in the legislation. And why is that? So if there is disagreement with management, they can grieve them. And we've talked to labor lawyers about this. They say, look, that is going to add thousands and thousands of additional grievances uh, between this union and the federal government. Uh, and, you know, right now in Canadian labor law, it is the employer that has the right to set the terms of work and where people do work. So those two issues are sticking points. There are other ones, too, but no real movement on the two key things between the union and the federal government. What is the mood like with, between the two sides? Uh, not great. You know, uh, we've seen at different points in time the union calling for escalation. Uh, you know, at the start of the um, of the strike, particularly here in Ottawa, you know, up on Parliament Hill, they were just walking around in a circle on the lawn of Parliament. Well, now they've tried to change things a little bit. They've blocked parking for people. They've been walking around to different spots to try and make life a little bit more inconvenient for the civil servants and the folks in Ottawa who do have to come into work. Uh, yesterday, they blocked uh, a portion of Pearson Airport at a certain time, too. So the union has warned that that will continue to increase. Um, we'll see how much that actually takes place and what the appetite is from the actual members of the union to go and block critical infrastructure or block people going to and from work. Uh, I'm not in particular here in Ottawa when we've spoken to folks. A lot of them are saying, well, I thought the strike was going to be done by now. Uh, I need to either get some money or I don't want to be in this position. Um, But it doesn't look like that is going to be ending anytime soon unless there's some big breakthrough negotiations. And judging by the tone from the two sides, that does not seem super likely in the short term. Mm, Okay. So what about the political aspect of this? What the opposition parties have been going after the government on this, right? 
Yeah, the conservatives have been doing what they do on pretty much everything at this point in time and saying, it's all Justin Trudeau's fault. When you ask the conservatives about what they do, well, do you want to give the union a 13.5% and add the collective, uh, the right to work from home in the collective agreement? Or do you want to legislate them back? They don't say what they want to do. They're just trying to pin this on Justin Trudeau. For Jagmeet Singh and the NDP, this is uh, comfortable territory. They like being out there with the unions, trying to differentiate themselves from their supply and confidence agreement partners and the liberals, saying that Justin Trudeau doesn't care about workers, that workers' wages do need to keep up with inflation. And for Mr. Trudeau, you know, he's trying to walk a fine line right now. He said, look, we believe in collective uh, bargaining. We want to go through that process. Uh, and in part because he needs some of those union voters and folks who are a little bit further to the left to show up for him in the next election and not show up for the NDP. Uh, and so there's a lot of dynamics here at play. But in terms of the back-to-work legislation, which is kind of the uh, you know, true political aspect of it, the NDP said they don't want to do it. Conservatives won't say at this point in time. They, the liberals don't have that on the table. You know, there's kind of... Uh, procedural mechanisms they have to do. That's not on the table right now for them. But if this thing continues to drag on, when they've used it before in uh, public sector strikes or in private sector strikes, I should say, it was around the three-week to a month mark when they did that, that's when I think that that becomes a realistic potential option for the Liberals to attempt to bring that in. And they would need the Conservatives' help to do that. Right. It sounds, though, like the union didn't think this was going to go on this long. Uh, Well, I don't know. The union was saying that they are willing to be able to wait out the federal government as long as they can, that they have the money to be able to do it. You know, I've crunched the numbers a little bit. They've got about $45 million in their strike fund. Uh, you know, if this goes on for a month, let's say, they're going to be in uh, some interesting financial situations in terms of uh, paying the people $75 a day. If you show up for a four-hour shift on the uh, on the picket line, you get $75 a day if you're a union member. Uh, the union's going through that relatively quickly, judging by the numbers we've seen out here. Uh, but it also should be noted that uh, civil servants are still getting paid. And how their pay period works uh, is that uh, they're basically paid two weeks in arrears. So they've still got paid on Wednesday. They'll be paid a portion of the pr- previous work that they did uh, ne- on May 10th. So the money is still coming in for those federal civil servants. Uh, if this continues to go past that point, then that's another real flashpoint to me about people's ability to be able to financially uh, withhold or, or stand up to the strike. Uh, we'll see how that goes as it continues to go on, because we're now moving to a much higher stake scenario as services start not uh, going for an extended period of time. It's easier for the federal government to have managers run things for a week or two, but to run things for a month, two months, three months, that becomes much more difficult. Wow, interesting. All right, thank you so much. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. A rare situation for the Vancouver Whitecaps this week. They have a game tomorrow and then not another game for another week. Let's check in with Coach Vanny Sartini this morning. Good morning, Coach. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. This hasn't happened very often, it feels like, in the last few months, has it? No, we had a very busy schedule. So for the first time, uh, uh, well, not the first time, but so, so, uh, as you said, it's a rare time that we had a complete week, actually two weeks, because we had a, a bye week last week in order to prepare this game. And we'll have uh, another complete week to prepare the next game before... Then after that game against Minnesota, then we start another very busy period again. So those two weeks are really, really important, not only to prepare those two games, but also to prepare the team for the, for the, future, for the future, I would say, endeavors. Okay, endeavor. That's a good way to put it. Uh, yeah. what, what do we know about Colorado at this point? Well, Colorado is a good team. It's like um, uh, they're good when, when they have the ball. They're offensively good. But I think that uh, uh, defensively we can kind of expose them. Uh, we're playing well. Uh, I think we have the weapon to uh, create problems to them. 
And uh, so, and we want to continue the trend. The last two games at, at BC Place, we won. We didn't concede any goal. And uh, uh, we have a big chance now with these two games at home. If we, if we do our job properly, in two weeks, the, the standings would be, would be really good. Having, having us in, a, I would say, comfortable playoff position. Right. Like the shutout streak is great, uh, but yeah. you also need to score some goals. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Right. Uh, yeah, that that has been, I would say, the probably the only little problem so far. We're playing very well. We're creating a lot of chances. We have a lot of shots. We actually, I saw statistics last uh, week. We are like uh, number one or two in the league in terms of uh, shots of goal in the um, and in terms of numbers. We need to be a little bit more, uh, I would say, clinic and precise when we when we shoot a goal. And uh, we worked a lot this week about it. So let's hope to to start uh, uh, increasing our percentage of, of goals uh, tomorrow. Yeah, that, that would be great. Uh, is it hard sometimes to keep, you know, the the spirits up of the players because they need that breakthrough, right? It feels like we just need to get that breakthrough and then we'll be on a roll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's always a balance, you know. It's, um, you need to... Uh, kind of sometimes work as a as an opposite to the uh, to what the player the mood that the player are experiencing so when they are after after a break they are arriving and they're a little bit sleepy and you need to wake up and then and uh, and to and to be very active at training and the other way around when the games will be really uh, Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday, Wednesday and a lot of pressure you need to actually step a little back and uh, and uh, let's say not put a lot too much pressure on them. So uh, it's uh, it, you try to find the balance. I don't know if I'm if I'm if I'm good at doing that, but I, at least I try every time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think you're good at that. But what do you tell the team then, coach? Like, what is your advice to them for tomorrow? Well, for tomorrow is uh, to really show them that uh, we should be. I. I, I use this expression to be in charge of the game from minute one. So dictate the tempo of the game, having the ball more than them, uh, being patient, uh, n- never losing the structure and never, never being, never chasing the game because you can win the game even at last minute. And uh, the most important thing is to, is to remain in the, in the right structure and follow what we're trying to do tactically, because I think that uh, uh, they should be, "Quote unquote," scared about us because I think that uh, we have uh, more uh, more skills, more weapons, more solutions than them when we have them. That's a good message. Listen, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> no problem, Simi. Have a good game. Talk next week. Yeah, Bye. good luck. Bye. Talk next week. That is Vanny Sartini, coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. They need the win. They need to put some points up on the board. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the whole Surrey 6 investigation and trial is back in the news this morning, all because of a decision by the Supreme Court of Canada that just happened an hour or two ago. What does all of this mean? Well, we turn to the expert for this. Kim Boland joins us now, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun, who has been following this story for years. Good morning, Kim. Good morning, Simi. Okay, can you explain this to us? What happened this morning? Well, the Supreme Court of Canada rejected an appeal uh, by B.C. prosecutors Uh, to overturn a decision that came in January 2021 of the B.C. Court of Appeal. The B.C. Court of Appeal agreed with defense lawyers in the 36 case that the original trial judge 
should have held what is called an evidentiary hearing on allegations of police misconduct. In fact, that judge did listen to those allegations, but only in submissions from the lawyers. They had wanted to bring, uh, bring witnesses, bring more evidence about this misconduct, which they said was so egregious that the charges against the two killers should be stayed. So it's a very discreet point. We're going to have this hearing at the B.C. Supreme Court level as ordered by the Supreme Court of Canada. However, right now, uh, the two men who were convicted are still convicted killers. There was no decision to set aside uh, that original verdict. It's only that they have the one remaining killer, because one has in fact died in prison, will have an opportunity to argue for a stay nine years after his conviction. Okay, so that means that this hearing is going to go ahead. What do we expect to happen at this hearing? Well, like I said, we already had sort of a mini version of it back in the fall of December 2014. So I expect that we're going to hear yet again about the misconduct related to four of the integrated homicide investigation team members at the time. Uh, they, three of them were convicted of obstruction of justice related to this conduct. Uh, they were flying to meet potential witnesses in the case. Some of them had uh, sex with some of these potential witnesses. Uh, they were partying. Uh, they were um, alleged to have misused police funds because, of course, they weren't actually doing their police business at the time. So I think that the defense lawyers would want to call uh, these officers, the three who are still alive, their former officers now, and see what they have to say about this. And perhaps there will be other evidence uh, that was used in the prosecution of these three officers that will be brought forward in this new Surrey 6 hearing. You raise a good point, though, about, first of all, this has gone on for so long, I can't believe we're still talking about this mm-hmm. case. Uh, but so what was the fallout from that? Like, you talk about the police misconduct, like those are just shocking things that kind of happened during the investigation here. What was the fallout for the officers involved? Well, they're no longer officers, for starters, and there were criminal convictions, although they didn't have to go to jail. They got conditional sentences. But, you know, three members or former members of IHIT uh, were convicted of obstruction of justice. They lost their jobs or they quit their jobs. Um, you know, and it was a very disgraceful conduct uh, that we learned about at the original Surrey 6 trial. Uh, of course, you know, I talked to Eileen Mohan, who lost her son Christopher, a bystander who got dragged into this terrible slaughter way back in 2007. That's what we have to remember is the trial ended in 2014, but these families of the six victims, you know, have been living this since October 19, 2007. Right. So it's a long, long, uh, you know, time. Kim, when you say that date, I still can't wrap my head around it, that it was that long ago and this is still going on. I know. Exactly. So, yeah. So I talked to Eileen Mohan and she's obviously devastated uh, that this is happening. She said, you know, these were you know, three officers. They're no longer there. And the, the vast majority of the dozens and dozens of officers who worked on this case were really good, did a great job in their evidence, you know, supported uh, the convictions that came in 2014. So, you know, it's it's going to be upsetting for all the family members, without a doubt. But it's it doesn't mean that the whole case is going to be tossed. You know, that I suppose is you know one possible outcome of this evidentiary hearing. But it could also just be that the convictions are upheld. Uh, once it goes back to the B.C. Supreme Court level. Right. So the point here, though, is that the defense counsel wanted a chance to question uh, some of the witnesses about this potential police misconduct. 
Right. And other defense lawyers that I've talked to today, they're saying this is a significant Supreme Court of Canada decision for all cases, because it means that if defense lawyers bring an application related to, you know, some alleged misconduct, there has to be a full hearing at the time, not just sort of a little cursory review of what went down and a judge's decision, right? So this probably will have more impact on other cases going forward. Uh, But right now, obviously, uh, you know, it's big news that the worst gangland slaying in BC history is going back to court so many years after it happened. Oh boy, it sure is. All right, Kim, thank you for explaining it to us this morning. Thanks very much for having me.